welcome to Center Church Dubai. We are a church built and centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ours is the story of a faithful God who saved imperfect people by His grace, united them by the love of Christ, and sent them out to bring many more to Him. Thanks for joining us. Today's scripture reading is from Psalm chapter 90. Psalm chapter 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O child of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning, it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening, it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by, strength, by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have, ev we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the word of God. Well, in our days, when we all came to Dubai here as an expatriate and the conversation and asking people, why is that you came to Dubai? You will find there was one common line that usually comes out. They say we're here to, you know, send money back home, build a house. And there's also a very common saying, especially with Indians. I'm not too sure about the other nationalities. And Indians, they say that every Indian is born with a brick in their stomach. With Malus, it is too. But it is true, we've all come here to build our homes, and we always want to get that money, that tax-free money, and all that we enjoy to send it back home and build homes. Now, if you go to Kerala today, you will see one of some of those wonderful houses that people have built. But it's sad to know that seldom do people live in it. Well, most of us are here, and most of us are different parts of the world. You know, when the floods came to Kerala last time, um, we did have people who were living on tops of mountains, and they said, listen, it's better for us to go live in the valleys. And, and people in the valley started better to live in the mountains. 
The reason is because people living in the mountains did see that the, the floods used to get into the house, but it left as well, so you could clean it and go back and live. But people down in the valleys, when they looked up, they saw that there's no water there, right? They, they're free from floods, we might as well stay there. People have all kinds of norms, visions, and dreams about building home. And construction of a house is just the beginning. It sets the dream in motion. Then you start visualizing a lot of things. You want to call it home. And what is even better is then we have a plan for inheritance. We want to pass it on to our next generation. You ask our children what they're going to do with our homes. Well, I'm sure one plan that they have is to sell it and take the money and travel the world. <laughs> and I'm sure we all have, right? Some of us have our own plans. But the psalmist kind of nails it and says, if that is true, if everything that you build is so temporal, shouldn't God be our dwelling place? It kind of narrows it down and brings it to this glorious truth. The psalmist is acknowledging that God has been our dwelling place from generations to generations. It's called the Psalm of Antiquity, by the way, written by Moses. And the title given to Moses is even beautiful. He's called the man of God. Seventy times and over in the Old Testament, this particular phrase, man of God, is used. One time in the, in the New Testament, especially when Paul uses that to Timothy, calls him a man of God. A man of God, in one of the definitions I read, is a man who is gripped personally by God. A man whose heart is soaked in by God's word and who loves God. He's a prophet who speaks the oracle who speaks the word of God, and that's the title, man of God, given to Moses. You see, one thing which the Jews knew is they're here today, they're gone tomorrow. They knew it. And they knew to be dwelling in God simply meant that there is no more destruction, no more wars, no more decay, but it's just glorious living forever in him. The language of God being our dwelling place will only make sense if you understood that Israelites were wanderers. They were wandering. They went from tent to tent. They just kept wandering from place to place. And that is why you find the scripture calling God our refuge, our dwelling place, our strong tower. He's our resting place. There are many of these synonyms of God being a dwelling place used in the psalm. That's also another reason why. In this world that we live in, we do have continual disappointments. And that's a way of life, right? The Bible does teach. I mean, brace up, take hold. In this world, you will have a number of trials. But I have overcome the world, is what Christ said. Here we have disappointments, but in God, the soul finds satisfaction. Here we have constant peril, we have a troubled spirit, but in God we have great security. In the face of such adversity sometimes that we face, hope seems to be evasive, but God is our everlasting hope. Here we face coldness, we face enmity of all sorts, but in God we have the sweetness of his everlasting love and his tenderness. God is the ever home for the believing soul. And this truth kind of not just anchors us to God, but also gives us a sustaining power to face some of the facts mentioned in the book of Psalm. One of it from verses 3 to 6 in Psalm 90, we see the brevity of life. I mean, some of the words that are used, you turn man to destruction. A thousand years in God's eyes is like a day. You know, this psalm, by the way, wants you to get a bit analytical, get mathematical if you haven't. 
He's asking you to count your days, right? Imagine this, if 1,000 years for God is one day, and he also says, by maximum push of your strength, you can live up to 80. Would you know in God's grand clock what it looks like? It's two hours. Get yourself an order. You have two hours. Imagine this if somebody came and told you, you have two hours to live. What would our lives be like? That also establishes the sense of urgency in Psalm 90. Count your days. Brevity of life. And then you also have the real cause of human misery. We see the terminology wrath being used. It's not a very comfortable place to be in. None of us want to really hear that word wrath, but the truth is God did unleash his wrath. We may not have witnessed some of it. The world that we live in today, you have a flood and a volcano eruption somewhere. They call it a mishap. We seldom call it God's judgment. But in the old days, people witnessed God's wrath and fury in front of their own eyes. Imagine a sea becoming a wall and drowning people. And that's not a natural phenomenon in our eyes today. Imagine a city like Sodom and Gomorrah where sulfur just erupted out and just buried and burnt everything alive. That was judgment. Imagine the flood, the days of Noah. We haven't witnessed much of of God's wrath. But the truth is, God's wrath is spoken about in this psalm. How does, therefore, God being our dwelling place help you tackle that? The beauty is this. God alone is the hiding place from his own wrath. That's the anchoring truth. For the brevity of life, God is my hiding place. You know, our days are no more numbered when we are in Christ. What a glorious change. The real cause of human misery, you have set our sins before you. Our secret sins are in the light of your countenance. Nothing in his light can be hidden. We know that. Encountering a God who hates sin. Let's talk about that. Isaiah 59.2 says, the only thing that separates us from God is our sinfulness. God being our dwelling place. Eternal God being our dwelling place. You know, in Deuteronomy 33, 27, the encouragement that God gives the Israelites. Eternal God is our dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms of God. God is not an inn. He doesn't sit on a throne in a place where we have a revolving door where people could go in and go out. He's not a temporary shelter, but the Bible says he's our dwelling place. It's not a material house, but a spiritual home where the spirit of man dwells. Christ himself said, abide in me. In John 15, 4. God is home. God is not a house. You know, if you look at homes, home is not an ordinary place, is it, in our lives? The central thing that kind of binds the home together and keeps the home together is man's love. Imagine if the man of the house had no love, home's hell. This message is not for the church, by the way. Our homes are sweet. This tremendous love that flows in his lows and ebbs in our homes. But that's what calls it home. God is our dwelling place, is our home, period. 
God is your dwelling place where he himself is both the subject and the object of great love. We pour out our love in praise of this glorious God that he is. Your loving kindness is better than life, says the psalmist in Psalm 63. It is that love that makes it home. It is that love that concludes in our heart with this glorious truth that God is my dwelling place and none other will do. What are the marks? What are the evidences that is left behind in our lives to believe and to know that God is our home? 1 John 4, 12 says, If we love one another, then God abides in us. A loving church where the fraternity and family comes together in, in one, under one banner, the banner of Jesus. There is a fellowship of great love, genuine love between one another. There is no rich, no poor. Every wall of division has been removed. In that church, every believer can confidently say that God is my home. He abides in me. One of the greatest evidences of a church is a church that loves one another. These are those who dwell in love, 1 John 4, 16. Those who do not love their brothers and sisters, he do not, he does not abide in them, and God does not abide in him. This is the salvific love, the salvation love that was given to us by the Father, that we shall be called the children of God. Children do not dwell in in inns, they dwell at home. This evidence of his love is also manifested in obedience, 1 John 3, 24. Those who obey the word of God, obey God, it is in them that God dwells, and they, do, and they dwell in God. 1 John 4, 13, the other evidence that we belong to God and we dwell in God is the presence of God's spirit in us. As the Spirit continues to bear fruit for his own glory, that's an evidence that God dwells in us. The Spirit in us itself is God in us, and we dwell in him. The Bible says, for anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not even belong to him. And for all those who are led by the Spirit, we have a special title. We are called the sons of God. And then finally, it says in 1 John 4, 15, those who confess the very evidence of their beliefs, those who confess with their mouths and their hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord, the Bible says God dwells in them. Believing is not forming a part of a cult or an organization or even a church. Believing is to be a part of the body of Christ where we call God our home. He dwells in us. That also places an accountability fair and square on all our shoulders. Living a Christian life is not a life that has to be led in simple freedom. It's led in absolute love and adoration for God. And what is the great blessing of dwelling in him? I mean, John 17, 21, the Lord's great prayer. I mean, the John, book of John 17 is itself God's prayer, the Lord's prayer. And you see the Lord praying and saying, as much as Lord, I am in you and you are in me, let them be in us. So that the world who does not know you will know that we are all one. 
There are three parts to the whole sermon that I've put together. We want to weave through those three parts. You will not find me going through them in, in, in sequence, but you will find flashes and evidence of all these three topics, these three parts in the sermon as we preach. One, we're talking about the eternality of God. The eternality of God. Second, we talk about the frailty of man. And the third, sufficiency of Christ. There are three parts to it. And the question that haunts us sometimes is how frail are we? You see, in this world that we live in, especially you know, working in organizations and offices, sometimes we start attending some of these, these management training programs, and one of the things that is slowly infused into all our hearts is how capable you are. There is no capability, no sister. Without him, I can do nothing. That's, that's very clear evidence that without Christ, we can do nothing. Whether it is to put the effort in, or whether it is to even enjoy the rewards of the effort that you put in, you need God. That's evident. You turn man to destruction, says the psalmist in verse number three. You turn man to destruction. You see, back home in our, when we have Diwali, we just finished that in the good old days. Uh, my mother used to make what we call as a rava ladus. I don't know if you know about this. Some of you will know, some of you may not know. Um, they say that <clears throat> the way she makes it, you know, yes, besides the, you know, you, you, your mouth, mouth starting to water, besides that, it's so soft and warm that if you don't hold it properly, gently, it'll just squish and become powder. This very language, I mean, imagine this, the psalmist saying, you turn man to destruction, this is one line, kind of make it look very simple, it doesn't take too long for God to destroy man. You turn man to destruction. And return, O children of men, he is, the only, he is the same God who not just destroys, but the one who brings people back. And for a thousand years in your sight is like yesterday. How frail is that? See, when I did the math, I put it this way. A thousand, days, a thousand years is one day for God. And then he says, by all strength, you live for 80. I did the math, you know, 80 by 1,000, the old math that I learned, is like 0.08% of a day. That's two hours. And that's why the language says we are like a night. We are like a fleeting shadow. We are like grass that sprouts. It's amazing there's a man who studied about grass. I don't know what that title is, but then he studied grass. And he used to say grass doesn't need water to sprout, right? It uses the morning dew, the atmospheric wetness, and it sprouts out of the ground. It comes out. And lo and behold, it looks fresh and nice and green in the morning. The morning sun comes out, goes into the afternoon by evening, it fades. And the question is, why are our lives this short? Was it God's actual plan that our lives should have been this short? Death was never introduced into the garden, was it? Unless and until man sinned. The painful reality of death does touch mankind without exception. There's an oriental proverb which says, The black camel death kneeleth once at each door, and each mortal man must mount to return nevermore. Death is a reality. We are mere mortals. We are all subject to death. You see, sometimes living too long 
and dying too early are both considered judgments. I come from an old business called life insurance business. In life insurance, the first thing they train you and teach you is to say this. When you sit with a client, tell them there are two problems in life. Either you die too early or you live too long. And we have solutions for both. Brevity of life can both be considered a judgment, both brevity and long life. Both can be considered a judgment. Let's take an example. 40 years of Israel's wandering. What it does, you witness an extraordinary mortality that happens there in that 40 years. And that was a result of God's direct judgment and judgment because of rebellion. A whole generation... A whole generation prematurely are destroyed at Kadesh Barnea. Just destroyed. In that 40 years of wanderings, all from 20 years and above perished. Leaving only two of their generation, Caleb and Joshua, to enter the promised land. It is this wilderness generation that brings alive this truth that the wages of sin is death. And we may trace this divine wisdom of this form of judgment to shortened life. Prolonged life actually gives opportunity to increase sin. And then we had the pre-flood sinners, the antediluvian. The pre-flood sinners went on sinning throughout their long lives. They went on sinning until it became so hopelessly corrupt that they had to be swept away by the flood. And you see, that's the reason why the psalmist is saying, our lives are so short, just like how the flood would remove the driftwood and everything else in its path so easily, so our lives, which are fleeting, so short. You see, sometimes long life is a doubtful good. Everybody wants to live long, right? Yet very few of us who've lived that long would advise others to live that long. You know, in conversations when, especially when you have the elderly in the house speaking to the young generation, you will notice people saying, I have had 10 more onam sadhyas than you have. I have heard my grandfather's clock chime 25 times more than you have. I've seen 10 or 15 more Thanksgiving dinners than you have. But when it comes to long life, there are these challenges that are associated with it. One of it, the age itself can put aside us from the activities of life. Some of us are, are put aside, you know, generation after generation, when businesses are transferred from hand to hand, you notice that when the, the old generation passes the business on to the new generation or the young generation, the young generation picks it up, brings their own ideas, and where's the old generation? They are made to stand aside and watch because they don't need them anymore. And old age, you also bear the burden of failing powers. Your strength fails, your power fails. And sometimes in the old age, as you live longer, you also have to bear the consequences of the sins of the youth that we have committed. Self-indulgence and sensualities, and they all inevitably carry the penalties to the old. 
and old age often find their greatest burden to be their loneliness in which they live. You see, the truth is this. Whether we consider short lives to be a greater judgment and long lives to be a longer curse, one thing is certain. Death is inevitable. It comes to both. Romans 5.12 spells out why. What brought upon man this, this immediate judgment of death? The man who was made in the very image and likeness of God. And you will notice in Romans 5.12, it's mentioned the sin of man, not sins. You don't find a plural there. It's singular. It doesn't mean, therefore, that it's, it's a set of acts or it is, it, it's a thought. It's, these are attitudes of man. It doesn't talk about any of this. The singular simply says that very inherent nature of man is to sin. It's a disposition of unrighteousness. You see, it is not the act of Adam's disobedience, but the very nature that caused him to disobey. In the book of Psalms 19, verse number 8, it clearly says, You have set our iniquities before you. You know, the other day I was talking to someone and he was talking about how in the good old days the acts that he was indulging in and he was once caught by his own father and how shameful it was. You see, any sin that continues to be hidden under the shroud of darkness and the cover of the night remains pleasurable until it's discovered. Because when it's discovered, it becomes shame. And any man who does not want to even think about shame has to be that hard-hearted that he does not want to think about shame. From the time that the land was cursed, toil and labor and grief accompanied. And you see the psalmist saying, even if I were to live by reason of strength up to 80 years, the boast is only labor and sorrow. For soon it is cut off and we fly away. And then this question, who knows the power of God's anger? Our only boast is labor and grief. You see, the Bible says all our sins are laid bare before him. Nothing is hidden from the eyes of an all-knowing, all-seeing God. God is light, the Bible says. And in him there is no darkness at all. Just like how matter can never be destroyed, they say that you can destroy anything, break them into pieces, but even if you break them into pieces and put them into powder and dig them down, you still have the atoms that will give away. It cannot be destroyed. Such is sin before an all-knowing God. No matter how much we try to hide, how much we tend to put it under the carpet, the truth is it remains ever open with all its graphic details before an all-knowing and all-seeing God. Nothing perishes before him. And you know the first impulse for a sinner is to hide. And we see that in Genesis 3, 8 to 10. Shame is the consequence of that exposed sin. Romans 2, 16 says God will judge the secrets of every heart. Every secret. God knows them. God knows the intention behind it. And he will judge every secret. The book of Job 34.22 says, No place can an evil do a hide. There's no place to hide. And Luke 8.17, Nothing is secret before this all-knowing God. There is nothing that will not be revealed before this all-knowing God. Rightfully, the glorious nature of God and his righteousness and his holiness cannot tolerate sins. And therefore, we see the Bible saying, his wrath is revealed. 
We have been consumed by his anger. Why? Because of our sins that we have hidden, our sins that are exposed before an all-knowing God. And therefore, our lives are so short and so small. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. Everything against everything. There is frailty in man, therefore, right? If I were to just summarize frailty, you're looking at the book of Psalms. It's very simple. Every man is a sinner. Therefore, death is upon him and God's wrath is revealed upon him. This is definition of hopelessness. And there is nothing in this blue, white world that we can do to get out of this on our own. Nothing. None. You see, in conversations that I used to have in the past as well with people from other walks of life and other religions, one of the things that they always spoke about is how they do good deeds. And how is that a good God cannot even consider these good deeds? But the point is not what your deeds and your hands have done. The point is where those deeds have come from. It's come from a colluded and a corrupt heart. And God is a God who sees the heart of man. See, as I was saying, the honest truth is we do not believe in the wrath of God, right? Because we haven't witnessed it. Natural events are called mishaps. Flood in the days of Noah, we haven't seen. We haven't seen any of those fires come and fall upon people. But there is an impending wrath that the Bible talks about. A wrath that is sure to come. John 3, 26. He that believes in the Son of God has everlasting life. But he who does not believe shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. We were talking about how God is our dwelling place, right? God is our dwelling place. We live in God. We want to dwell in God. But the Bible says your dwelldom in God is only through the door of Jesus Christ. He's the one who opened us to live with God. And without Christ, something else is what we dwell with, which is the wrath of God. Children of God, do we realize this? At the heart of the gospel... None of our intelligence could help us recognize that we need a savior. None of our good doing and digging around and research helped us to know we need a savior. It is an act of God out of the ordinary for him because he loves the world that he came and opened the heart of a sinful man. It had nothing to do with us. So it is Christ who gives us therefore everlasting life when we believe in him. see, the wrath of God, we don't witness because it's not placed on us. The wrath of God that we see will abide in those who do not believe in Jesus Christ has not been placed on us. And it has not been placed because it was placed on him. If we were to ever live in that freedom to know that there is no wrath of God upon me, it is simply because he was crushed for our iniquities. It is because he was pierced for our transgressions. You see, the truth is, our sins did not crush Jesus. It is God who crushed Jesus. The wrath that was due to us, we didn't avoid it, we didn't wing it. We didn't duck and avoid God's wrath. It was placed fair and square upon Jesus Christ. And the Bible says he became sin for us. And that's evident here. The reason why we haven't witnessed wrath is because we never had to. 
It was placed upon Christ Jesus. And this sacrifice is what satisfied God. And we saw that in the, in the past. I want to go back and talk about this. But the truth is this. God, when he put his son on that cross, it was not a private event done in darkness. God did that in absolute public view. He was taken out to the cross and on the Mount of Calvary for the world to see that that's how I will defeat sin and the wrath of God was placed upon him. Therefore, we don't have to sit and dabble or even think about what that wrath would mean to us. Everlasting life has come at a cost that you and I can never imagine. How does that become a reality in my life? For me to know that it's not just the price that he paid, but how he paid that price in full. For someone who knew no sins to become sin. And it is this, the greatest humility you see in Christ Jesus is that he became man. Our days are numbered, the Bible says. Teach us to number our days, says the psalmist, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Wisdom for what? We know we have short lives. We know we don't live too long. We know our days are numbered. Then what wisdom do we need by numbering our days? Let the numbering of days in God's clock, two hours, tell you something. It's impressing the urgency of time. Time is evasive. It's telling you that you need to redeem time. When is salvation? A good time for salvation is not by your clock and your calendar and your planner. Salvation is now. Today is the day of salvation. You see the urgency that is being spoken about. And therefore, what should this urgency of the number of days do to me? It should dawn on us that let's seek the wisdom of our life thereafter. The wisdom of eternal life through Christ Jesus. What is to follow after our earthly lives? He was writing about the reality of God's anger. He himself, Moses himself, experienced the sting of God's punishment for his sin in Numbers 20:12. The rich man who was storing up for the years in Luke 12, 19 to 21. But God calls him a fool. Why? Because you're sitting and planning and preparing for years to come. And what will happen to your soul if I called you home today? The frailty of life that God has given us, and when we number our days, it is for us to fully know that we seek the wisdom of understanding what our life thereafter is in Christ Jesus. Our days are numbered. And the beauty is, these days that are numbered has just been multiplied by what we know as life abundant in Christ Jesus. Do you know that the equation just changed? If death has lost its sting, and the Bible says, yes, you die once, but you don't die twice, it simply tells you that I do not have to sit and count and number my days. It's only in earth that I need to, but the time comes where that number makes no sense because I will be living with Christ forever. He converted that numbering of days to days that can never be numbered. And that's in Christ Jesus. And that came because the wrath of God was placed on him. That came because the number of days of evil of our lives and the consequence thereof was placed upon him.
I shall give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hands. John 10, 28. No one can snatch them. You look at verse number 13. Return, O Lord, how long? And have compassion on your servants. Return, O Lord. Does God not show compassion to us? I'll tell you with the greatest compassion that you read from the Bible. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. If you are waiting to see anything more compassionate, as church we've disappointed ourselves. There is nothing more compassionate than this. That a man who does not deserve to live, but that he should go under the weight of hell. He should be punished for his own sins. God sends his son. Nothing of your traits or my traits. Nothing of my qualifications. Nothing of my love or goodness. Nothing of my family inheritance. Out of all this comes the extraordinary love of God. That he loves his children. Therefore he sent his son. Every single frailty of man ends on that cross. Verse 14. Oh, satisfy us early with your mercy. That we may rejoice and be glad all our days, all our days. Christ is our satisfaction. Because he satisfied God, he appeased God. The wrath was placed on him and he satisfied God. And today we enjoy that satisfaction in our lives. Eternal life is the greatest evidence that our God was satisfied by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And the gift of eternal life given to you is therefore the evidence of how much this God loves us. For a church to find satisfaction outside of Christ is like for a man to find a morsel in the desert. There is nothing. If man is fleeting like a shadow and he's just as long as how a blade of grass would live, what more can satisfy us? Verse number 16, let your work appear to your servants. Let your work appear to your servants and your glory to the children. The Bible says this is the greatest work of God in our lives. This is the work of God that you believe in him who has been sent. I mean, do you know that we ourselves could not have possibly believed in Jesus Christ unless his grace enabled us to. Faith itself is a gift that God gave us so we can believe. Unless God had opened our blind eyes, there's no question of salvation. How could we possibly know the work of God if not through the salvation that he has blessed in your life and mine? You look at verse number 17. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and because of this great work in us through Christ, we are now his workmanship, the Bible says, created in Christ for his good works. 
What are the works that a Christian does? What is this prayer? The Lord established the work of our hands. And look at the definition there. Establish the work of our hands for your glory so that the beauty of God be upon us, not our beauty. We are his workmanship. We are created in Christ for his good works. Therefore, our prayer is that we do all things for God, which is to labor and to labor for the bread that does not perish. He was pierced for our sins, was crushed for our iniquities. And it is this very punishment that has brought peace upon us. Have you ever seen a war where you have to have violence before you can enjoy peace? But we see the whole violence of God's weight of glory pressed upon Christ. And through that violence of Christ, we now enjoy great peace. And therefore we now say the Lord God, our God Almighty, is our dwelling place in all generations. We dwell in him. Church, I would like you to think about this. Consider this truth in your hearts. When we say we consider God to be a dwelling place, what does that mean to you? Have you considered the weight of the evidence of God being your dwelling place? Does your life proclaim the confession of Christ in faith? Does your life evidence the great love of God that you show to your brothers and sisters? Well, that's evidence that we dwell in God. Dwelling in God is not a magical phenomenon where life suddenly gets perfectly all right, everything is sorted, everything is taken care of. But remember this is what the Lord says. I give you peace, a peace that the world will never understand, and I'll give you my peace. And that's what we enjoy when we dwell in God. We hope you were encouraged by today's sermon. Please visit our website, cc-dubai.com, for more information on Center Church Dubai. If you know someone who will be blessed by this sermon, please share this podcast link so they can stay updated.